having, this is our, our next class in the series on men and women in Christ, a divine harmony. And this is a collection of scriptures, uh, each of which could be a class on their own. But I put these together largely because they touch on the same kinds of themes we've already looked at in the classes we've already done. So I'm not saying they don't add anything, but they do sort of follow similar themes. So, so far in these classes online, we've talked about hermeneutics and exegesis, how we think about the scriptures, how we study the scriptures, how we draw out the meaning. That's what exegesis means. We've talked about the particular passages in 1 Corinthians 11 about head coverings in chapter 14, uh, about uh, learning uh, from your husband at home from 1 Timothy chapter 2. We've looked at those. And then on our Sunday sermons, we've been looking at a number of Old Testament and New Testament examples of men and women working together. What we learn from that about God's vision for how men and women can be a blessing to each other and to his work in this world. Because that's what we're trying to figure out fundamentally is how do we harness what we have the best way so God can get his will done in this world. So I think that's our hope, to get a better vision of God's vision for men and women working harmoniously for his glory and the advancement of the kingdom. So tonight's passages, there are several, as you'll see on the screen, if you've got that in front of you, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 3 and Titus 2, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Galatians 3, Romans 16, two verses from that. Some of these passages I will treat in more detail than others. I clearly won't teach everything in every passage, or we would be here all night. And I know many of us have spent plenty of time looking at screens today already, so I don't want to hold you to a screen any longer than we have to. But let's let's dig into uh, the passages that we're going to look at. And the first one is First uh, Peter 3, 1 to 7. Peter writes, wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word, by their wives' conduct, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Do not adorn yourselves outwardly by braiding your hair and by wearing gold ornaments or fine clothing. Rather, let your adornment be the inner self with the lasting beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. It was in this way long ago that the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by accepting the authority of their husbands. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You have become her daughters as long as you do what is good and never let fears harm you. And there's some instructions to the men a bit further down. I mean, yes, husbands, in the same way, show consideration for your wives and your life together, paying honor to the woman as the weaker sex, since they too are also heirs of the gracious gift of life so that nothing may hinder your prayers. So what's Peter getting uh, going on about here? What's his uh, key thoughts here? I would suggest a couple of things for us to think about. And by the way, as I've said in previous recordings, I'm emphasizing alternative interpretations of these passages more than the traditional ones. Not to say that I'm sure that the these other alternative interpretations are always necessarily correct, but because we've heard the more traditional interpretations uh, far more often. So we need to think about how we might think about these scriptures in a fresh light, in a fresh way. So the context of these instructions to husbands and wives are, is what? Well, it's 1 Peter 2, verse 23, uh, about Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, 
he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So they're being asked in the context here to look at Jesus and see him as a model, a model of one who trusted God and was able to deal with circumstances that were not ideal, uh, but able to do that because he had faith in God. And so I think he's saying wives and husbands act in the same way here as Jesus did by submitting himself to the will of the Father and trusting him. Wives and husbands submit in that sense, in the way they submit. The way they submit is by saying, I trust in God. So wives in this passage, in the context, are being called to submit to their husbands. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily being called to, uh, although the, uh, to uh, some kind of uh, subservience. It's more that they're called to trust that God has their back in a sense. And particularly in this context, he's talking about wives who can win their husbands over. So these are husbands who presumably are not Christians. Uh, in that day, if a, if, a, if a husband, a head of a household, became became a Christian, then essentially the whole house became a Christian. That just sort of happened. But it, it wasn't that disturbing to the household because the husband was understood to have the authority of the household in that culture, whether you were Christian, Jew, Greek, or whatever you were. But so what, what Paul's dealing with here is, uh, or Peter's dealing with here, is wives who have become Christians without their husbands becoming a Christian. And that was far more disruptive to the family home. Now she's under threat, you could say. I mean, she, she might be, her husband might be trying to force her out of her Christianity and back into whatever pagan religion uh, he was following. And what, what Peter is saying is, if you want to see your husband become a Christian, don't fight it, submit to him, allow him to have the role he has in this culture to, uh, to uh, be the one uh, to whom you, have, you are in submission to. And then you've got your best chance of seeing them become a Christian. The submission has an aim. The aim is to win over the husband. He talks about Sarah. Uh, what's the model he's, uh, he's looking at there with Sarah? I think the, the model he's looking at is that Sarah saw the promises fulfilled to her. She was given promises, right, to have a son. She was given those promises. How did they get fulfilled? They got fulfilled because she trusted God by hanging in there with Abraham. Uh, Abraham was her Lord. Was he a perfect Lord? Uh, you don't need to know much about the story of Abraham to know that he twice passed off Sarah as his sister. She almost got taken into uh, a pagan king's, uh, well, she, she did into his harem, and, and who knows what might have happened unless God had intervened. Uh, he, um, he wasn't exactly a great husband in many ways, but I think what Peter's getting on about here is to say, uh, follow her example of trust, that then the promises work out. And with the husband, he tells them to focus on their duties, not their privileges. Uh, perhaps the weakest, the sense in which the wives are the weaker sex or women are the weaker sex is not so much they are a weaker spiritually or emotionally or anything like that, but more that their societal position is weaker. They are more vulnerable than the husbands, than the men in that culture. Uh, you need to take care of uh, treating them right, he says, because otherwise your prayers will be hindered. And the word hinder means to be cut off. So like your, your connection with God will be cut off if you don't treat your wife well. So the overview of that passage, I would say, is that there's not meant to be any competition in marriage, but a mutual concern. Titus chapter two. We can come back to these passages, each of them, uh, later in the discussion. I'll just go through them for now. Titus chapter two. Paul writes to Titus. He says, as for you, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. Tell the older men to be temperate, serious, prudent, sound in faith in love and in endurance. Likewise, 
tell the older women to be reverent in their behavior, not to be slanderers or slaves to drink. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, chaste, good managers of the household, kind, being submissive to their husbands, so that the word of God may not be discredited. So what's going on here? Well, a couple of thoughts for us. He talks first of all to the older men and, and tells them to basically behave themselves. So it seems perhaps in the church there that the older men aren't behaving very well, and that misbehavior is causing the women in the church to struggle with respecting them. So the first thing is that they've got to get their act together. Then he talks about being the, the women being submit, subject to their husbands. Again, what's the aim here? What's the purpose of the instruction? Is that they uh, that the aim is to honor God's word, make sure it's not maligned. So in that context, he's saying, submit to your husbands because this will not malign God's word. Because in that culture, if you're going to have a woman trying, a wife trying to um, usurp in, a, in that societal context her husband, it's going to make things look bad to the rest of the world. And they're going to come and say, we, we're not interested in, in this religion. Whereas if they conform to the societal norms, even though knowing that may not be God's ultimate will, which we'll come to later, that will still give a window for the world to say, okay, then what's really going on here? I wonder whether insisting on the same kind of submission today might have the opposite effect. At that time, saying it's better for the wife to submit works with that society. If we because it, it, that means the, the word of God is not maligned. But if we insist on the same kind of submission today, I wonder if the opposite happens, that that would malign the word of God. And perhaps we need to think differently about that. That's Titus chapter two in a nutshell. Ephesians five is a longer passage. We won't look at all of it. Um, we don't have time, but we'll look at some significant points. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Remember, this is the same church that Paul wrote to Timothy when we studied the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the same church in Ephesus. He says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the saviour. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be, in everything, to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her, to present the church without, in splendor, no spot, wrinkle, or any other blemish, to be holy. Um, and basically, like Jesus, be like Jesus, as he loves the church, love your wife. Um, the, uh, each of you should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband going on here the context of this there are two very important point parts to chapter five before this the first is chapter five verses one and two where paul says follow god's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to god so it's framing everything he's saying in this chapter and this is true of husbands and wives, it's true of slaves and masters, it's true of um, children, it's true of fathers in, in this passage in Ephesians. All of this is under that, uh, the umbrella of saying, we need to not be like the world. We need to love as Christ loved us. So you love one another. So children with your parents, fathers with your children, slaves and masters with each other as Christians, husbands and wives. It's about the love of Christ. That's his emphasis. And in, in addition to that, in chapter 5 and verse uh, 18, 
chapter five and verse 18 says, who's got it open? And put that reference in there directly. Chapter five, verse 18, he's talking about not being drunk on wine, but being filled with the spirit, speaking to one another with, other with psalms, hymns, and songs from the spirit. So he's talking about what it means to be filled with the spirit, again, in Christian relationships, men and women, husbands and wives, uh, children with parents, uh, fathers with their children, slaves and masters together. So the love of Christ and being filled with the spirit, what does that look like in Christian relationships? That's the context of what's going on here. And remember that Artemis is in the background, which we talked about uh, last time, where in religious circles, the women would be used to being in charge, perhaps being a bit bossy at times or domineering even, and assuming that they were more important than the men, at least in the religious sphere. And perhaps they saw themselves as the source and the head, because that's the way that Artemis was viewed. So that's in the background, all of this passage here. So in verse 22, when he talks about submitting, I really don't believe that's got anything to do with authority as such, at least not authority in the way the world sees authority. It's not implying authority, but a Christ-like way of relating to one another. Because verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, comes before verse 22, submit to your husbands. So it's really about mutual submission. He's reminding the wives that they need to deliberately choose to submit to their husbands as much as the husbands are expected on some levels to submit to their wives. It goes both ways. It might look a bit different in its expression from husbands to wives and wives to husbands, but it's a mutual submission that is going on here. He says, submit to them as you do to the Lord. And how do we submit to the Lord? We submit to the Lord in love, in trust. We submit to him voluntarily. He does not force us to submit to him. Now, this is very countercultural because most other writings of the period, the Greek and Roman writings with instructions to husbands and wives, say to the husbands, rule your wives. The instructions given to the husband, rule your wife. It's assumed the wife will submit to being ruled by the husband. But here, and, and the wives have no choice. They just have to do that. It's a, it, 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 they're forced into it in that culture. But, G, but Paul, Paul is saying here, follow the example of Jesus, who trusted God, voluntarily gave himself up to the will of the Father, and followed it through to death, out of love for us, that's the way you treat one another as husbands and wives, voluntarily. He says that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. We haven't got time to unpack all of that, but something to think about is, is what kind of head are we talking about here? It's a Christ-like head. It's not a Western view. A Western view of headship tends to be about leadership and about being at the top of a pyramid, if you like. But how does Jesus use his authority how does he use his power there are different ways to translate this word head it could mean source and it could mean something about leadership authority perhaps it means a bit of both jesus these words that word is used of jesus in two different contexts particularly in colossians and ephesians to imply that he is the source but other times he is the if you like leader of his church so there's something about both in the background to this word but it's the quality of the headship that matters not the positional technical theological point here it's about uh, a loving leadership or perhaps headship. Jesus's headship um, is, the, is the way that, uh, the, that husbands are meant to exercise their headship with their wives, which is expressing the love of Christ for his wife. And that's the context of the rest of chapter 5, verse 25 and following, as Paul uses the example of the way that Jesus is with the church to inspire husbands to be with their wives. In verse 24, he uses the word submit again. As the church submits to Christ, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
does this imply obedience? Submission isn't the same as obedience necessarily. I think what he's saying is that the, the old and accepted social order of the time doesn't need upsetting right here and now. Don't try and mess with what's going on in your culture right now in this situation, because the way you live will subvert it, much in the way that uh, there aren't any instructions to abolish slavery, but living as Christians, when slave and masters in church treated each other with mutual submission and love, that subverted the whole uh, institution of slavery at the time and showed a very different way. Paul did say, get your, get your freedom if you can, but there aren't any instructions to abolish it. doesn't mean God liked it or thought it was a good thing, but more that there are, there are more important things to do in your relationships that will reveal there's a better way of living. And I think that's what's going on here with husbands and wives in this particular context. So that's Ephesians. That's our longest passage. How are we doing? Okay, Colossians 3. Colossians 3 says, wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. I can hear the wife saying, amen to that. Uh, what's going on here? Again, although the word submission is used, it doesn't mention leadership here. It doesn't, in fact, I would say even imply imply leadership. It's just saying fit in with your cultural norms, I would suggest, and do this as is fitting in the Lord, similar phrase to what we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, which is a special quality different from the world. Again, it's a voluntary submission, not a forced one. You choose this position because it will help in this culture for your husband to fulfill his role and for the gospel not to be maligned, but instead to be attractive. Um, the cultural expectation was for husbands to rule, but here Paul says, love them, don't be harsh with them. Very counter-cultural. And bear in mind, by the way, just a side point, but just before this in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, uh, teach and admonish one another. So he doesn't say men teach the women and, admon and the men admonish the women. He says, teach and admonish one another. So whatever the submission point means here, it doesn't mean that wives are to shut up and not say anything and not do any teaching, not do any admonishing, even of the men. So we need to think about that a little bit. Moving on. Galatians 3, one of the most famous passages about this kind of thing. Beautiful, a beautiful passage and promise and result of what Jesus has done. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Okay, what's going on in, uh, in this inspiring uh, passage? Well, the context of Galatians here is about salvation and about everybody having the right to be an heir. There's a, there's a conflict between Jewish and Gentile Christians about circumcision, and the Jewish Christians are saying you have to be circumcised or you can't be an heir of the promise to Abraham. That's not going to work. And Paul says, you've got that completely wrong. You're all heirs of the promise to Abraham by your baptism into Christ. That's how you got, you got clothed with Christ and you came into Christ. And now everybody is an heir. In my NIV 2011 edition, verse 26 says, you're all children of God through faith, which is true. But the word in the Greek is sons. And that word sons is important because in that culture, it was only sons that inherited. And so what Paul is saying is, 
No, you men and women are sons. You Jews and Gentiles are sons. You uh, slaves and uh, free are sons. You've all got the inheritance that comes through Christ. I think that's rather inspiring. Same rights as everybody else. In other words, this new covenant is not like the old one. Circumcision was only for the men in the old covenant, but a baptismal circumcision, Colossians 2, 11 and 12, that's for men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, for all whom the Lord our God will call, Acts 2, verse 39. He talks about male and female. That's the same phrase as in Genesis 1, 29. He created humankind in his image, male and female. He created them. I think Paul is deliberately using male and female to remind us of Genesis 1, 27, which indicated there that the new covenant relationships between men and women are meant to look the way that men and women related before the fall, Genesis 1, not after it, in Genesis 3. There is a curse in Genesis 3, but Genesis 1 is how it's meant to be, and he's connecting this new covenant that you and I live in, that the relationships we now have are, are designed to be the same as they were before the fall, where men and women didn't have any of this ruling over uh, one another. Uh, it does end up that Adam kind of rules over Eve, and Eve kind of is subject in a subservient way to Adam in some ways, that wasn't God's intention. And I think this passage sort of encapsulates that whole promise that we can now relate in the way that they were originally designed to. And we were all originally designed to relate as, as Genesis chapter one uh, brings out. It's important to note that this text is not about ministry roles as such, but identifying the changes that have taken place in our access to God because of Jesus's death and resurrection. Uh, your young men will, uh, and old, uh, your young men and women will prophesy, it says in Acts chapter two. It's about both taking part. Um, there is a tension between the kingdom vision stated here in Galatians 3 and the cultural reality, which, when Paul was writing, prevented a full implementation of this kind of vision, which is a bit like slavery at the time, which I mentioned earlier. Two last passages, and then we're going to have some questions and discussion. All right. Romans 16, about Phoebe. These are relatively small points, but they're kind of interesting, I think. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. So Paul is writing to commend Phoebe and calls her a deacon. That is the word deacon. Uh, it, uh, it may well be that the women mentioned in 1 Timothy 3.11 talks about the men deacons, but the women mentioned here may also have been deacons in the same way the women are to be worthy of respect. So that's the men are meant to be certain kind of characters in the same way the women are supposed to be like that too, implying that there may well have been men and women deacons in Ephesus. And, and Phoebe is called a deacon in this passage. She may have been the bearer and the interpreter of the letter of Romans. Many people think that's why she's mentioned perhaps first at the beginning of Romans 16. She's the one who carried the letter and would have read it into the churches. There were probably at least six house churches in Rome at the time, looking through Romans 16. Um, and she'd have been the one to read it, deliver it and read it and possibly interpret it. And that's what generally happened when a letter was taken somewhere like this kind of letter. The bearer would be the interpreter because they were probably there when it was written. So we don't know those details for sure, but it's interesting that she's placed at the beginning here. And she's called a deacon, much like any other man would be a deacon in the first century church. Also in Romans chapter 16 and verse 7, we've got Junior. Greet Andronicus and Junior, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. 
I'd love to know more about what's going on here. I'd love to chat to them and Paul. So here are Andronicus and Junior, possibly a married couple, though we don't know for sure. They're relatives of the Apostle Paul, and they were Christians before him, before he had that experience in Acts chapter 9. Fascinating to know how did they become Christians? What kind of impact, if any, did that have on Paul before he became a Christian? We'll have to ask God when we get to see him personally. But, um, but he says they were in prison with him, and they are prominent among the apostles. That phrase can be translated a number of different ways, but however you translate it, the word apostle is in there. They're some kind of apostle. Are they the same kind of apostle as Paul or, say, Peter? Maybe not. Maybe they weren't around at the very beginning. Maybe they didn't see Jesus in quite the same way. We don't know for sure. Some people think there's an apostle with a capital A, which are the ones who saw Jesus, and there may be some apostles with a small A who were missionaries, because that's what the word means, basically, one who is sent. And maybe they were sent with a special commissioning, very, very likely. But nonetheless, they have a very significant missionary role. And uh, they must have been uh, maybe a bit like a Priscilla and Aquila in some ways. And, they, and if you're a, a missionary and you're a woman, because Junior is a woman, then you are teaching and you are involved in leadership of some kind, clearly. And uh, Paul feels very good about them and what they're doing. I should mention that this word Junior was translated Junias at some points, which is a, a male version. Well, it's supposedly a male version of the name, but that name just doesn't exist. It, it was invented, basically, to prevent it looking like it was a woman. <laughs> so Junius, in some translations, you'll still see this in some old translations, Junius is a man who didn't exist with a name that didn't exist in the ancient world. In fact, it was Junior until the, with an A, female, until the 14th century. It got changed somewhere in the 14th, 15th century into being translated with a supposedly male name, even though that name doesn't exist. And Luther himself adopted the masculine and called this person Junius instead of Junior when the Greek is Junior and is a female name. Who knows why Luther did that? I, we can look that up another time. But basically, this is a woman. We know it's a woman. And all the modern translations translate it Junior, which is a woman's name, which is fascinating, I think. To summarize, and then tell me what you think. To summarize, I'd say this. We know that male and female relationships were damaged by the fall. That's what we see in Genesis chapter three. There's a curse, there, there's, a re, there's a reshaping of the relationships and not in a good way. We also know that the consequences of the fall are reversed by Christ. That's a large part of why he came, to give us the kind of life that we'd already been, always been designed to have. Thirdly, we also know that the early church didn't abandon all of the societal consequences of the fall because that would have hindered the gospel. So there's some ways they accommodated to the culture. We also know, fourthly, that the early church did disturb the status quo by men and women radically living in mutual submission to one another in imitation of the love of Christ, which would have stood out. Fifthly, if we're asking who gets the right to tell people what to do, like who's got the authority, who's the leader, who's, is it the men, is it the women, is it both? If we're asking that question about who has the right to tell everybody what to do, we're asking the wrong question. We're thinking like the world. Jesus did not define his kind of leadership by the fact that he was able to tell everybody what to do. How did he model living a spirit-filled life? By being a servant, calling others to be a servant, and indeed um, uh, uh, showing that those who lorded it over others, even for their supposed benefit, fundamentally do not understand what the kingdom of God is meant to be like. So the question isn't who's in charge. That's never the right question. The question is who's got in leadership at least, who's got the leadership gifts. Sixthly, submission comes out a lot in these passages and some of the other passages we've looked at. But submission is a Jesus thing. It is a man thing. 
it's a woman thing. It's an every follower of, Je of Jesus thing. Now, that submission will look different in different contexts. It might be different at work and at home. It might be different in the first century compared to the 21st century. It might be different in Africa as opposed to Ephesus or China in ancient times or in modern times. But the submission is a Jesus character, trust in God thing, not a positional thing, and certainly nothing to do with who has authority and the authority to tell people what to do. We'll come to what's next maybe later, but let me stop there.